You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Today's guest writes Entertainment with a Soul from her writing chalet, Toolshed, outside Lyon, France. Her highly acclaimed best-selling novel, The Swan House, was named one of Amazon's top Christian books of the year and one of the Georgia's top 10 novels of the past 100 years. All of her novels have been translated into multiple languages and have been international bestsellers. Two Destinies, the final novel in the Secrets of the Cross trilogy, was a finalist for the 2013 Christie Award. Her most recent book, The Promised Land, won the Carol Award in 2021. Elizabeth Mooser, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Kylie. How cool that you live nearly all France. What is your favorite thing about where you live? And let's be honest, every place has its difficulties. So what would you say is your least favorite thing about where you live? So I would say for my favorite thing is the slower pace of life in France. Now, people work hard, but we walk everywhere. I live in a village. And we walk to the bread store, we walk to the grocery store. I, this morning, I walked to the open market. And I often on a Sunday afternoon, you'll see three generations of family walking together. So I love just that slower pace and the idea that bigger isn't better. It's just bigger. And so I say that walking to the bread store to get a loaf of bread and hanging your clothes out on the line to dry are not wastes of time. I think they help you have a slower rhythm. But that said, one of the least favorite things about living in outside of Lyon, France is that I'm far away from my family. So I have two, my husband, Paul and I, we have two young adult sons and they both live in the States. They're both married. And my old, our older son, Andrew has five kids. So we've got five little grandkids running around. So that is the, for sure, the biggest downside of being overseas. Now the boys were raised overseas, but they went to school, they went to college in the States and they're back there. So that's the downside. Yeah. Yeah, that is hard. My husband is from Texas and I am from Washington. Um, But I'm, I'm so glad we have things like Zoom and different things where we can connect that as much as been, we can. Yeah, that has things. been wonderful because we've been overseas for so many years, 35 years. And for many, many years, you wrote a little, they were called aerograms and you they were lightweight letters and it took a week or two to get there and then to get a response week or two to get back. And by that time, it wasn't new news and you couldn't really have, you weren't getting advice that you need on the spur of the moment. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, our communication these days is much more immediate. It's You think of these people who went to journeyed to a new country or something like that, and they're literally saying goodbye potentially forever to their family. Oh, yes. My husband grew up in Brazil. His parents were missionaries in Brazil. And yeah, they didn't. They wrote a letter to their family every week, and it was on a piece of carbon paper that they made carbon copies and mailed them out. And it's just everything's changed. 
Well, as I was preparing for this interview, I discovered that you are a Southern girl based in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was actually raised the first 10 years of my life in Northeast Georgia. So high five. Yes. Okay. I'm high fiving. (laughs) But how does that, would you say, affect your stories and your writing coming from the Southern U.S. culture? So I, the short answer is it affects it a lot. (laughs) And I would say I write Southern lit a a bit. And so most of my novels are set in the South, either in the South of America or the South of France. But Atlanta is by far my favorite city setting. And um, in my novels, the setting self often becomes a character. And in this novel, I'm not just focusing on Atlanta or even Buckhead, which is the neighborhood where I grew up. And it's the setting of my novel, The Swan House. But this time I focus on the house and property where I grew up in Atlanta. And so I... Yeah, I weave a fictional tale around my parents' home on Nancy Creek Road as I ask questions about like the worth of land, family history, memories, and shared dreams. And so I think we would all, y'all are writers too, you probably know, I mean, part of who we are ends up in our novels, even if we're writing medieval history. There's just, I find that I'm often writing what the Lord is teaching me or those little themes into my novels. But this one was very much not only Atlanta, but, but my childhood home. So it, but all my stories, yes, I, I enjoy setting them in a place I know well. I greatly admire authors who can make up their own country or I think that's what you said you did, Darcy, but (laughs) I, I need a place that I can at least imagine. And so Atlanta has been my my go-to often. That's really cool. And I don't know, Atlanta has a lot of history there, so there's plenty to draw from. I'm As you were talking about kind of the themes in this book, though, I'm getting like Gone with the Wind vibes. Where, did you have any thoughts like that when you were writing the story or just this was all by itself? Not Gone with the Wind. Some of my novels dealt with, especially the ones that are that take place in the 1960s, such as The Swan House. They are. They do deal with a lot of the issues of racism, and the my inspiration came from growing up in in the 1960s and seeing just the whole civil rights movement come to life and to expand. But this one is is all about. It starts out. It's finding dinosaur bones in a buckhead backyard. So I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But that was. The beginning of that's the first line of this novel. And so it it was not inspired by Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. That would, there's some, a big contrast. Exactly. That sort of wrecks, redirects. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of novels, since writers are first readers, I'd love to know what is your favorite underappreciated novel? So that one, I was just like scratching my head going, wow, I don't know. I look back at all the novels I've loved throughout my life. I can't think of one that I just think, oh, a lot of my writer friends, I'm like, that book should have been a bestseller. But but the one I wanted to mention is, and it's funny, I think it's well appreciated. It's called Shades of Light. And it is a contemporary novel by Sharon Garlow Brown. And she has written a series of novels called 
sensible shoes and they're about they're life-changing novels they're about spiritual direction so they're very anyway they've been bestsellers and they've taken on a life of their own and so this is a her more recent novel and it hasn't quite garnered the same audience i would say but it's about mental illness and faith. And I write about that also in some of my novels. I like to probe difficult and deeper themes. And so she does such a beautiful job. So anyway, Shades of Light by Sharon Garlow Brown. And I am actually right now reading that book sequel, which is called Feathers of Hope. Oh, wow. That was a hard question. Do all your authors have an immediately a book that they come, that comes to mind? I don't know. We don't ask all our authors, but I love to pull that question out once in a while because we get such interesting answers. Does anybody ever say, my novel, it lets under a <laughs> bit? I'm sure no one would say that, but it's probably a temptation. (laughs) I'm sure we all feel that every once in a while. Anyone who's written and published a novel probably feels that just a tiny bit once in a while. Not much, but just a little bit, yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I think we had one author answer with a historical novel, a novel that was much older. Actually, it was by one of C.S. Lewis's. It's not very popular. The names escaped me. But yeah, you never know what we're going to get. And it's really neat, too. I think it opens up this avenue to readers. They may be like, hey, that sounds all right. And to they maybe try a book that normally they wouldn't have even thought of looking at. So. Well, and I think in today's world, most books, they're not out of print anymore. So it may not be that the book was underappreciated 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but now it's not as well known. So I I think about how George MacDonald, his novels are very, I hear them mentioned a lot now from modern readers and writers, but he wrote a long time ago. So exactly. That's really neat. Yeah. For this novel, I, I was researching, I went to the Library of Congress and pulled up a PDF of this novel that I was literally reading it on, felt like I was reading it on microfiche, which I'll probably, y'all are so young, you probably don't even know what that is, but. (laughs) I've heard of it. But anyway, you can find, yes, you can find things now. And it's, especially when you're researching it is Google is a great friend. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? That's a great question. Um, I, what I would like to share is just, so my other job is pastoral care for missionaries. We call them our workers. And I'm, my husband and I are part of a, a nonprofit agency that cares for the oppressed all over the world. And our specific job is to meet with in person or via Zoom or all other kinds of possibilities with our workers around the world. And, and our goal is to help them be healthy physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and help them establish healthy rhythms in life learn how to rest, and understand about the seasons of life. And I used to write little articles for magazines, and one of the ones I wrote was called Bearing Fruit in Its Season. And I was a mother of a toddler and a baby, and I was also a missionary, but I felt like I didn't have very much fruit to show for it because I was caring for babies. And I read Psalm 1, 
for, I'd read it many times in my life, but I read how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. And at that time, I don't even think I could find my Bible. I was sleep deprived with these babies. And, um, and, but when I read that bears its fruit in its season, and I think that's such an important thing for us to know, to, to realize as believers, whatever age, our fruit is going to look different according to the season of our life. And I am actually in a season of grief. I just lost my beloved father earlier this year, and I am having to learn to practice what I preach to others, to give myself time to grieve. And I'm even going to be doing a debrief later in the summer. But I find that, yeah, the Lord is so kind to remind us that, one, we're completely unique. Our ministries are unique to us. And they are also unique to the season of life we're in. And, and so you girls are young writers. And I just, I love to encourage younger gals in ministry or in writing and just say, pay attention to what season you're in and what the Lord has for you in that season. But it, for me, it really was the Lord just stopping me. And before I started berating myself and beating myself up because I wasn't doing enough, which I think is every season of our life, we can do that. But he reminded me, no, this is your season to pour into young children. And so this is now my season is being a grandmom and many other things too. But I, I do think not comparing with others and looking at our season and asking the Lord to now that I'm in this season, show me what you want me to do. Yeah, I really love that. I was talking with my 15-year-old the other day and telling her how I'm just so proud of my three children. And people used to say to me, like when I was that young, exhausted, sleep-deprived mom, oh, these are the good years. You're going to look back someday and wish you could relive them. And I was just like, you know, I'm not. Like every season of my children's life and and me as a mother has been difficult and beautiful and unique and just so valuable. I wouldn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to go forward, you know, like right now having, I have a 12 year old, a 13 year old and a 15 year old. And I'm like, this is difficult, but wow, God is working and he's been faithful so far. Let's just, I don't know, keep moving forward. You that's know? A great. I think it's, yeah, I think that's a great outlook. And I will say, here's a plug for a book that helped us in, with our boys in their teenage years. It's called Age of Opportunity by, I think it's mm. Paul Tripp. And it was great because it's like people say, oh, you're moving into the teenage years. Oh, we're hard. That's going to be tough. But I love that the whole presupposition, it's an age of opportunity. That is free advice that you can totally disregard, but... <laughs> It came to me. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I'm pulling it up on Amazon right now because that's my view. I understand teenagers have struggles, but I'm like, there's no excuse for bad behavior. We all have to do our best. There's no teenage card that you can flip out there, honey. You just, I'm sorry you weren't thinking. I'm sorry you weren't wise in that, but you were wrong speaking, especially with my 15 year old. And so, yeah, it is an age of opportunity as parents to, to teach and disciple and clearly direct. 
and also for the kids that's the, these young adults to learn how to be adults and adults that glorify God and have a purpose. So yeah, I've, I'm going to save that one in the age of opportunity. And yeah, and we learn too as parents. That's the thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's And I thought that book, I thought it just had some really great ideas. It's old. It's it, This was probably, you know, 15 or 20 years old ago, but 15 or 20 years ago, but it was, I really appreciated it. Mm. Yeah. While details yeah. may change, the principles will always hold true. Exactly. Well, we've already been talking about your book some, but let's go ahead and read the blurb and dive into a few more cool questions. By way of moonlight, for as long as she can remember, Allie Massey, a gifted physical therapist, has dreamed of making her grandparents' 10-acre estate into a trauma recovery center using equine therapy, a dream her grandmother, Nana Dale, embraced wholeheartedly. But when her grandmother's will is read, Allie is shocked to learn the property has been sold to a developer. Decades earlier, headstrong Dale Butler's driving passion is to bring home the prized filly her family lost to the Great Depression. But with World War II looming, she's called upon in ways she never could have imagined. And while her world expands to include new friends and new love, tragedy strikes close to home one fateful night during the Battle of the Atlantic, changing her life forever. As Nana Dale's past comes to light in Allie's search for answers, Dale's courage and persistence may be just what Allie needs to carry on her grandmother's legacy and keep her own dreams alive. So on the historical side, we have World War II on the home front. And what better place for Allie to find inspiration to fight for her dreams in the present day? So first of all, how did you come up with this idea? So as I said earlier, the present and the past, both timelines, part of them, a great deal of it takes place at in my childhood home. So I had this idea in my mind of the property in Atlanta, my parents' estate back in the 1930s and 40s. And so I was, again, kind of wrestling with an idea for a, a book that talked about family history and keeping property and at the same time, I serendipitously happened on a photo of a group of military men galloping their mounts along the beach of Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And Hilton Head is my family's favorite vacation spot and has been for the past 50 years. But this photo was taken during the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II when the island was mostly deserted. It wasn't a tourist destination at all. And I found myself literally cantering into the world of the Coast Guard Mounted Patrol, which is affectionately called the Sand Pounders. And that has been such a wild ride. I grew up with horses in my backyard, and the present day story was already about horses. And I had never heard of the Coast Guard Mounted Patrol so it was just fascinating. But what I found out is what was happening in the 1942 was that the German U-boats were destroying our tankers, which were trying to take stuff from the Atlantic coast over to, to Europe. They were destroying them four to one. And the merchant mariners who were on those tankers were not military. They were just men taking supplies over. They had the highest rate of death of anybody in World War II per percentage of the people on the tankers. And what happened was they created a mounted patrol. And these were men from 17 to 70 years old that could not, for one reason or another, serve in the military. 
And they set up within six month period mounted patrol for every coast in the United States. So the Pacific Northwest and the Southeast of the United States. And so anyway, it was just fascinating finding out what these, this mounted patrol did. And so my story just blossomed from learning about something that I absolutely had never even heard of. And I created this dual time novel that highlights the wonder and adventure of my mother's life as a young equestrian star in the 30s and 40s. And I combined it with the intrigue of the Battle of the Atlantic. So yeah, it was, I think, and y'all also write his, historical isn't it fascinating to just, I love finding a, a little known piece of history and bringing it alive for my readers. And then of course you get to add in your inspiration and your and fictionalize it. But I loved the studying about the sand pounders, the Coast Guard mounted patrol. That is super cool. I had not, until I was reading your novel blurb, I had no clue about the Coast Guard mounted patrol. It makes sense, but also I just, I'd never heard of it. And the age range that they were recruiting from 17 to 70, that's pretty interesting. But it also, it was an important job done by people who couldn't go overseas and fight, but hey, there's work to do here too. I loved, I really just loved seeing the courage and patriotism of your normal Americans. And, and really, there was a great danger that, and in fact, in the novel, I talk about some of the the Germans who came on shore, there were just different things. There was a great danger and just the heroics of normal people who stepped up in America. Yeah. So both Allie and her grandmother, Nana Dale, are determined to risk everything to save what they love most. Without giving away any spoilers, can you explain how this determination, this drive impacts both of their lives? Sure. So the present day protagonist, Allie, and her gr- grandmother, Dale, are, they're both strong women who are courageous. They're also savvy businesswomen with a deep respect for family and a deep love for horses. But one of the themes I wanted to delve into in the novel is about obsession. I wanted to examine the thin line between fighting for what you believe in and, a, and developing an unhealthy obsession. And both women learn important lessons about pursuing dreams at all costs, which may cause them to sacrifice something or someone they love. Of course, I have never been obsessed about anything. It has nothing (laughs) to do with anything the Lord is teaching me, but I still thought it was a very interesting thing. I think we tend to very much look up to strong women characters, but I wanted to look into the downside too and how they grow and their story arc. And it was, I learned a lot. (laughs) And just a few of the lessons that I hope readers will gain from the book is just to be careful about obsession and to fight for what you believe in, but fall on your knees often to make sure the Lord has the last say. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting theme, honestly, for a novel, because I feel like the whole point of a story is someone fighting for what they believe in or what they want to achieve. But you're absolutely right. Sometimes the Lord wants to redirect us and we're just so focused on this thing we become obsessed with. So, yeah, that's a cool theme. I look forward to reading about that. (laughs) Good. Yeah, it was, again, like I said, probably strikes close to home for the author, but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so as you were writing the dual timeline, did you find that you ended up with a favorite or easier timeline to write? So it was my first, By Way of the Moonlight is my first dual time novel. And I actually loved every part of writing this novel because it was so close to my heart. First of all, I was doing research in my childhood home, reliving my mother's past, and then digging into history that was brand new to me, which was all about horses. And I also had fun including lots of slightly altered incidents from my growing up days with horses. And my favorite by far was the mystery of finding dinosaur bones in a backyard. Um, Truth is stranger than fiction, and my family story has a lot of delightful strange in it. And one thing that I've created, which readers can find on um, Instagram and Facebook, is I have a virtual tour for By Way of the Moonlight. And I have these, in the end, there will be about 15 one-minute videos of the property that the story is based on. And I take you around to the barn and to the ring where the dinosaur bones are found and to, into the house and the ribbon room and just different things that inspired the story. And I post those every Saturday on Instagram and on Facebook. And I really did love doing the research for both parts of the story. And I will say, I also absolutely love creating two sweet love stories that in my humble opinion, are swoon-worthy and sure to bring laughter and tears. And what I found is that love in the 1940s and in present day aren't so different when they involve a besotted girl, a kind and adventurous guy, and horses. Lots of horses. (laughs) So do you foresee any more dual timeline novels in your future? I do. I have multiple ideas that I've jotted down and I want to talk to my editor about which one I should pursue. And at the same time, I have the fourth book in my Swan House series, which is about reconstruction Georgia and, and in the past. So this one is already written and it was, it's, it was written a while back before dual time was the thing. So I'm going to change it up a little bit. But anyway, it's about Reconstruction Georgia. And in the present day, it actually has to do with sex trafficking. So it's a, again, I don't really write light books, but there's always redemption there. And there's usually a love story there too. That one is, will probably come out later in about a year. And in the meantime, I'm working on a few other dual time, but not going to be able to say much more about those yet. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing what your next release is. And just thank you so much for coming on the Historical Bookworms show. For our listeners, Elizabeth has been so gracious to offer a copy of By Way of the Moonlight. And to enter, just uh, check on our website, historicalbookworm.com and the giveaways page. And I also post on social media. So Elizabeth, how can our listeners learn more about you? So they can find out more about me and my books by visiting my website, which is just elizabethmusser.com, M-U-S-S-E-R, and Elizabeth with a Z, because in France they spell it with an S, but elizabethmusser.com. And I have a blog that I post every other week. It's called Letters to the Lord. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. And I love hearing from my readers. There's a button on my website where you can contact me. I also have a newsletter that I send out bi-monthly that you can sign up for. So any lots of different ways and just really a pleasure to chat with you, Kylie and Darcy. Thank you 
Thank you so much for having me. And now, a message from American Christian fiction writers, public relations liaison, Cynthia Rukti. Created with Christian fiction reader fans in mind, the 2022 ACFW Story Fest. Come be part of our inaugural year of hosting ACFW Story Fest, formerly the Christian Fiction Readers Retreat. It takes place Thursday, September 8, 2022, in the afternoon through Saturday, September 10th, at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. Come celebrate story and your favorite Christian fiction authors right on the premises of the ACFW Conference, where hundreds of Christian fiction authors gather each year. You can learn more about StoryFest at www.acfwstoryfest.com. Hope to see you there. Now for a pinch of the past. On today's Pinch of the Past, we are looking at the Sears and Roebuck catalogs. I had a lot of fun sifting through this one from 1897. Now, if you're not familiar with this company, according to the History Channel, Sears, Roebuck, and Company is a retail giant with 19th century roots as a mail-order business operating in rural America. Sears grew into one of the nation's largest corporations, redefining the American shopping experience in the process. Its 130-year history embodies the rise and fall of American consumer culture. So this will be part one of a Sears and Roebuck special that we've put together. They sold medicines, grocery, hardware, building materials, and household appliances like refrigerators. They also supplied clothes, carpets, curtains, books, pretty much anything you needed for your house. They shipped over land and sea, and they offered the option of returning items and also insuring goods as they were shipped. Oh, wow. I didn't know that they would insure products in the shipping process that you could purchase. That's a cool thing. thought that was a more yeah. modern option, but no, they had it back then. Yeah, they were very thorough. At some one point in time in history, you could order houses off Sears and Roebuck, and they would send all the lumber and all everything, the screws, and you just put it together. And those some of those houses are still standing. It's really amazing. But for today, we're going to be looking at groceries and starting out because readers listen to our podcast, we're going to look at coffee and tea. So coffee, and here's the promise. All of our roast coffees are choice. We avoid complaints by giving in all cases and at all prices coffee that looks good, tastes good, saves money, and presets your temper. A trial order will tempt you to order again. Give this department an early trial. Really? Yeah, I just love their advertisements. I know. And they have quite a list. I tried to narrow it down, but I am a fan of coffee. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, we might as well see what options they had then. We think we're so sophisticated with everything we have now. Let's see what Sears and Roebuck offered. Yeah, we do think that. <laughs> so they had Arabian mocha, Peaberry mocha, old government Java, Ceylon Java, African Java, mocha and Java blend, Golden Santos, Peaberry, Choice Santos, Golden Rio, Select Rio, Good Rose Santo, and Rio Mix. And you could order these crushed ground or whole bean. They also sold cocoa, teas, and green coffees. Oh, wow. So you could buy it, buy the coffee, and roast it yourself if you so desired. Yeah. But wow, what a 
it sounds like they had roasts and flavors for pretty much anybody, same as today. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And then for tea, so they had several different kinds of tea. And I went ahead and just looked over the, the section of teas from India, and they came in one-pound packages. It says, the World's Fair created widespread demand for these very choicest grades of tea. We offer the best known, and by all odds, the most select and delightful of the scores of attractively named teas on the market. The lover of a drink, the finish that can be brewed, will be charmed by its delightful flavor. I love it that they specified attractively named. Maybe they're saying these make good gifts. They're going to look oh, good as soon yeah. as you see the package or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So they had the Light of Asia, Star of India, Lala Roof, Lala Rook, Monsoon White, Monsoon Yellow, and Nabob, also called Naban. Well, some of those do sound attractively named, and then a couple of them must be in a different <laughs> language, I guess. Yeah. Other beverages that they offered included lemonade mixes, lime juice, grape, Thompson's Hygienia, wild cherry phosphate, which I believe was, so that would have been mixed with water. And they offered ginger ale. Wow. We think we have everything now. They did. If you had the money for it, you could get it in the mail back then. That's really Oh, yes. And if you were a baker, oh, So they had quite a bit for baking, a huge variety of extracts. They had raspberry, strawberry, pineapple, rose, celery, almond, clove, orange, peach, banana, peppermint, wintergreen, cinnamon, lemon, gooseberry, plum, blackberry, coffee, chocolate, sherbet, quince, pistachio, nutmeg, sarsaparilla, mead, currant, tropical melon, ginger, walnut, mandarin, tutti frutti, (laughs) or geet, allspice, or coriander, curry, lavender, lime fruit. And these were all packed in glass bottles with corks and pretty paper labels. Whoa, that kind of selection you don't hardly see in a baking store these days. Who gets quince extract? Yes, I know. I'm just like, I always get stuck in the baking section if I'm not careful at the grocery store. So looking over this, I was like, oh, that sounds good. I want to go go make some mint chocolate fudge. (laughs) So jellies and jams, these were shipped in pails. And they were prepared from ripe fruit, currant, strawberry, raspberry, quince, or grape. They were also shipped in 20 to 30 pound kits. So the fruit butter was shipped in hermetically sealed cans containing five pounds each. It says, we'll keep for years in any climate, clean and wholesome. Their flavors were apple, peach, plum, quince, and pear. They also sold gelatin for people who wanted to make their own jelly. Oh, now that's handy, because if you try to make jelly just fruit and sugar, it is hard to get it to jelly. Oh, it is. So much sugar. Oh, yes. My grandfather actually made jelly, and some of the batches turned out great, but occasionally a batch would not work, and so you ended up with fruit syrup, but it was super, super sweet fruit syrup, and if you set it in the back of the fridge too long, the sugar started to crystallize out of it. Yeah. So just finishing up their table sauces were actually fairly similar to our own. They offered Worcestershire sauce, Indian soy sauce, Tabasco, catsup, and horseradish. Oh, wow. That does sound about like the display you'd find in your refrigerator these days, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it does. So I love reading through old newspapers, magazines, and catalogs. It gives me such a unique glimpse into the everyday life of people at that time. For the 1897 Sears and Robot customer, it seems they had a plethora of items available to them, some very much like our own today and others thankfully different. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this peek at the goods provided to Americans in 1897. We will continue in the next episode looking at interesting household items of that era. Time for our bookworm review. Lost in Darkness by Michelle Green. Even if there be monsters, there is none so fierce as that which resides in man's own heart. Enchanting Regency-era Gothic romance intertwined with inspiration from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Travel writer Amelia Balfour dreams of touring Egypt is halted when she receives news of a revolutionary new surgery for her grotesquely disfigured brother. This could change everything, and it does, in the worst possible way. Surgeon Graham Lambert has suspicions about the doctor he's gone into practice with, but he can't stop him from operating on Amelia's brother. Will it be too late to prevent the man's death or to reveal his true feelings for Amelia before she sells to Cairo? This review is brought to you by Christy, a member of the Historical Bookworm Review Team. This author continues to create authentic characters and delve deep into the psyche of them to drive the plot of a richly imagined story that threads fiction with history. As with most historical fiction books, readers will be amazed at the amount of research that goes into them and the author's magical weaving to impart that knowledge without coming off as a boring history professor. The chemistry between characters will keep you engrossed until the end. It was the perfect read as Halloween was approaching. The right mix of danger, tension, and romance. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.